Oh, in the game, yo. Why would we do something like this? Show me the money. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Pathetic. I said pathetic, desperate, pathetic. This is one of you, right? Right, are we talking about a sick guy? Why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? All right, Nathan, let's uh, get comfortable on the couch, spread out the trades here in front of us, and take a look at what's going on in entertainment news this week. So first up, per Variety, Mattel Films and Daniel Kaluuya, his production company, 59%, are developing a live-action Barney the Dinosaur movie. Quick trivia question, Nathan. Let's see how iconic Barney is. What color is Barney? Uh, Barney is a purple dinosaur there with a go. green belly. Yeah, so he is. Uh, it is iconic. They say in the in this write up that it's an iconic character, and you know what color he is. So I think that proves my <laughs> point. Uh, they and, call him a hero. Yeah, I like uh, which that. I thought might be a little bit of a stretch. Can but uh, go ahead, continue with the details of the project. Yeah, I'm going to read a quote here from Mr. Kaluuya, who yes, is that same uh, Oscar nominated actor from Get Out. Was also in Black Panther. He had the following to say, Barney was a ubiquitous figure in many of our childhoods. Then he disappeared into the shadows, left misunderstood. (laughs) We're excited to explore this compelling modern day hero and see if his message of I love you, you love me can stand the test of time. Nathan, your thoughts on that quote? Well, I didn't know Barney had disappeared into the shadows. I knew that he was out of my life. Because my siblings, who I used to watch Barney with, had grown up. Um, but I, I didn't realize that he had any sort of sordid exit. Um, you know, uh, like the guy who uh, was Elmo's voice or anything like that. Uh, so I don't know what he's talking about. If anybody does, please send us an email. Wow. Um, yeah, that's dark. I mean, I, I as we'll talk about as we, we get into our own sort of therapeutic past, I guess we all have a shadow self. But I did not know that Barney the Dinosaur had disappeared into the shadows. What has he been doing in the shadows? I guess maybe, is this going to be some sort of dark origin story about Barney? For the the love of God, I hope not. (laughs) I I think we're in on, we're all in on purple suited uh, dark origin stories. Um, I I do, you know, they did do a Barney movie in 1998 at the the sort of height of Barney mania. Um, And the plot was basically that Barney helped a kid not be bored. Uh, over the summer. So if that's what constitutes a hero, I, I think maybe he can be a hero. Did that um, movie then, help you be a little bit less bored in the summer of 1998? No. By that time, I was uh, Barney was banished from my, my household. Uh, but I had I have very fond memories of with my uh, younger siblings who were born in uh, 1991 and 1994, watching quite a bit of Barney you know, up until 98 and then a little bit after it, but not specifically the movie. That was a little too long, long of a hang uh, to expose myself to Barney. Um, but it's, you know, it's, we're obviously being very standoffish. I don't think it's really for us. My kid will probably enjoy it. I don't think we're going to look for parking and shell out 16 bucks to go see the Barney movie, but yeah. we'll see what, what it looks like. That's the thing that strikes me is that um, my mom was a nanny, so I grew up with a lot of Barney in my life uh, because of the kids she took care of were often, you know, somewhere between two and five, but the kids that are of the age to go to the movies aren't usually Barney age kids, right? You need to be like seven, eight years old to be able to handle the in theater experience. So 
I guess in today's day and age, maybe it'll end up on a streaming platform. Who knows? So just a little bit more context on the project. So Mattel Films, obviously, uh, is the film branch of the toy maker. Um, they're adding this Barney production, who they own the IP rights for, to other projects that they have currently in development that include a Barbie movie that's forthcoming starring Margot Robbie. And they also apparently have a live-action Hot Wheels movie that is racing quickly on the fast track, if you will, Nathan, to theaters <laughs> in the future. Um, but I guess it's just part of this larger move of trying to create any IP into, into a film. But yeah, I, I do wonder about a theatrical feature-length Barney movie being the right way to there's, adapt Barney. Uh, as you talk about it, man, I realize there's 0% chance this comes out in a theater. Right? With, with Disney Plus giving their entire basically everything but song of the south to you with the the price of admission or your you know your subscription price why would you ever go through the hassle of going to a theater to see barney right when all, so much other stuff comes directly to you this will if they're lucky end up on netflix or disney plus or uh, you know whomever mattel's parent company is yeah i think it would they're be uh, maybe warner or viacom one of those one of those they all have will eventually have streaming okay platforms. then he'll be on uh, hbo max yeah, um, it could be. Uh, and I just want to... Which I know ties into the other thing uh, that's interesting here is the Barbie movie with Margot Robbie. Amy Schumer was originally uh, that's right. attached to that. You are Mr. Segway already. Fresh <laughs> off the mat here. Our next story per deadline, HBO Max, the aforementioned uh, streaming service of warmer media, um, has ordered a documentary called Expecting Amy. That's a working title, Nathan, so it could be changed. Um, from comedian and actress Amy Schumer, and the documentary will give an unfiltered, behind-the-scenes look at the Emmy winner's journey of preparing for a stand-up special while, and here's the rub, going through a difficult pregnancy. I'm going to read a quote for you, Nathan, to react to here. Please. This is from uh, Sarah Aubrey, who is the head of original content for HBO Max. See if there's any hyperbole in this statement. Amy Schumer is an inspiration, and this project is such an honest look at her experience being on the road while preparing for her special. Her willingness to showcase her immense vulnerability during the most challenging time in her life is both empowering and hilarious. Okay, so there's a lot to dissect here. Um, this uh, sort of project is is obviously all news to me. I knew, obviously, that she had a, a baby and that she was pregnant and... and I'd followed some of that, but like, so circa 2016, summer of Trainwreck, um, Amy Schumer was completely overexposed, right? She was everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, then she sort of, I thought, wisely went away for a little bit, but lo and behold, she was filming her whole life. Um, and so it, it, it's a little bit, uh, uh, I'm a little bit, I feel a little bit sort of betrayed uh, uh, um, by my, I guess, perception of this person um I but think if i just and i just think that uh on the one hand i think it's great to you know bring light to a subject like this perhaps with some levity in it but the two things that stand out to me are number one it says at least in the description we'll have to see if we see the finished product that the uh story begins at basically you know her uh, learning that she's pregnant. But if that's the case, and she had cameras on her from the beginning, she didn't know that she was going to have a particularly difficult pregnancy. So she was already mm -hmm. planning to document this experience. And the only thing I would say to that is, you know, that's her right as a person. But I just kind of think in her 
medium, which is stand-up comedy, and she's a great stand-up comic, that kind of the whole point is for her to live her life and then process that through her stand-up comedy voice. So I would love to see the special where she does a bunch of material about going through all that stuff. But mm-hmm. I do wonder if seeing the behind-the-scenes reality of it uh, not necessarily takes away from it, but it does take away from the sort of uh, the way stand-up comedy works, which is that the artist has oh. done the processing and spit it out to the audience in a way that you know is a little bit more consumable. I, I think she's beyond a stand-up comic now. She's a, a brand. She's an icon and and probably an inspiration uh, to, to some. Uh, and I think that this getting made, getting a deal, this is essentially an Instagram story, dude. Like this is, you could get this information on social media if she had let this narrative play out there. But instead she leveraged her star power, I think pretty, pretty smartly, honestly, from a business perspective to uh, sort of go through this experience and profit from it. And I think the, because she is a brand, she's a personality, like there's an immediacy to uh, and an intimacy to watching her go through these experiences without time to process them that fans of hers are going to absolutely love. Um, and to your point about, you know, these stories needing to be told, like I, I alluded to having a kid and my wife had a complicated pregnancy. Uh, and yeah, sure. Tell that story and do so with some levity. But I would be wary of like, you know, there's going to be a lot of preaching to the choir on this. You know what I mean? No one who's not a fan of Amy Schumer is going to tune into this, I assume, and become like, oh, my God, I I love Amy now. Like, it it seems like if you watched Inside Amy Schumer, if you watched her specials, like, you may tune into this and, and enjoy it. But for me, it's going to be one of the things I scroll past while trying to get to friends. I think the... The funny thing about it is that, you know, she's a pretty confessional comedian. Um, That's part of her, Mm -hmm. you know, brand, to use your term, or her comedic voice. Um, But in some ways, it would be, uh, it's sort of counterintuitive, but the most affecting version of this documentary would probably come from a comedian or actress who we don't know a lot about their personal life. But I know uh, Amy Schumer kind of brings you into that. You know, I've seen... I've probably seen more pictures and and video of Amy Schumer, you know, without makeup being real, which I appreciate, than just about any famous female personality, you know, like even a lot of like the Amy Poehler's or Tina Fey's of the world, usually you're seeing them, you know, in press junkets or on shows where they're kind of made up or whatever. But you get a lot of, you know, access to Amy Schumer where you get to see the real person, which I really appreciate, but it would, it would almost be more interesting to sort of unmask someone that we don't get to see that backstage persona in this sort of situation. Um, I guess to your point, it's just, it's, it's, um, it's going to provide people that love her already with more of the same essentially, which is, you know, getting to full access, no boundaries. Yeah. The Amy Schumer experience, getting inside Amy Schumer as the, I believe the show was called. Oh boy. Um, I would also say, uh, and to your point, you might want to check out baby Cobra. Uh, Ali Wong special that she did when she was pregnant before Amy Schumer did this, um, you know, and was just put the last, I guess, pile of dirt on on this. But like, it's not original at this point. No, um, I, I mean, so. that's, I guess, the aspect of this that is original is to have it filmed. And uh, did you catch who the editor is? No, lay it on me. Last line of the piece. Uh, the editor is the person who edited Beyonce's homecoming. OK, well, uh, I do not know their name. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a, a very certain type of uh, aesthetic you're going for. Very, very, like you said, well, very well manicured Instagram story type uh, perspective. 
Yeah, and and people are gonna pay. It's what you're gonna get with your your fee for um, what was it? HBO Max, right? HBO so. Max. Yeah. Speaking of fees and streaming services, uh, our last big story of the week, uh, per Observer, uh, the big forthcoming Apple TV streaming service show, uh, The Morning Show, which stars a couple people you may have heard of, a couple powerful women, Nathan, Jennifer Aniston, and Reese Witherspoon. Um, Brown-haired Reese Witherspoon. That's right? true. Yeah, Reese is a brunette. That's something to really wrap your mind around. And for the pleasure of providing us uh, what will be two seasons of 20 total episodes, so two 10-episode seasons, uh, Apple TV is paying $300 million to produce those 20 episodes, which, doing a little math here, comes out to $15 million an episode, which is roughly the same as what HBO paid during the last season of Game of Thrones. Of course, that season included, you know, monstrous special effects, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of extras competed, uh, created by a computer. This is a show about, a, you know, today, a show like the Today Show uh, with a couple of uh, anchors. I believe it's Jennifer Aniston and Steve Carell. And I think Witherspoon's the producer, if I'm not mistaken, on how the show. I believe that's correct. Yeah. Is it? Let me ask you this. Is in this world, is it the Today Show, but dragons exist? No, like, don't is it like a lot dragons. of news reporting on dragons. No, Game of Thrones was probably paying those many millions to create said dragons. In this case, Apple is paying one point two five million dollars per episode to both Aniston and Witherspoon to both act in and serve as executive producers for the show. So again, doing a little bit of quick math, that is twenty five million dollars all in for each lady. So power to them. Well, and that's the low number I saw. I saw, I think, I can't remember if it was Deadline or Hollywood Reporter. Uh, had them at two million a piece, all in with producer fees um, and things like that. So either way, man, you're looking at like, uh, say it's two, so four million out of fifteen million dollars per episode is for your cast, two members of your cast. That's pretty. That's pretty impressive, ladies. Like that is. It's really impressive. Uh, yeah, women. Uh, women do run the world. But it is uh, it, it's their it's their basic uh, play on um, it's it's their house of cards, right? Netflix needed their mm-hmm. first uh, flagship show, where you know they pay a lot of money to David Fincher and Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright to really put themselves on the map, since this is going to ostensibly launch uh, the streaming service. And yep. just a couple more financials here to put in perspective: the streaming service is set to cost. It could have hold on, hold on, real quick before sure. you talk about those financials. Let me point out one huge difference between Netflix and Apple, uh, which may be a factor, may not for the things we're going to discuss here in a minute. But uh, Netflix leveraged themselves to make House of Cards, meaning they needed to borrow money to go into the production business. Apple prints money. Yes, right? that was Apple actually exactly what I was to... going to say. Was that uh, while the streaming service will only cost ninety nine nine ninety nine a month, uh, the Financial Times has reported two things. Uh, or first, that Apple's committed uh, upwards of $6 billion towards the original shows and movies that they're going to create for the streaming service. But to your point... Uh, of it was where, in Steve Jobs' couch. Yeah. Uh, and to that point, Apple is currently thought of, according to Forbes magazine, as the most valuable brand in the world, valued north of $200 billion. So doing a quick analogy here, Nathan, uh, it's basically like you having $200 in your pocket from your paycheck and deciding to spend $6 on a sandwich. Right. It's it's no big deal. Um, and it's going to be interesting because Netflix does have such a stranglehold on the market. Um, 
it's going to be interesting to see if these new subscription services that come online actually draw subscribers and like siphon away from that. So like we've seen CBS All Access, we're seeing um, Apple soon, Disney soon, we're going to see HBO next year. Have you, do you have any, or I guess let's start with what subscription services do you pay for now? Yes. So I have Netflix, which I, of course, share with uh, my two cousins, uh, but, you know, they made that possible. So I share that with two people. And then I have uh, an HBO Go account that my, one of my cousins I share with Netflix with, she allows me to share her HBO Go. Uh, I now no longer have cable. I have Hulu Live TV. So technically, that's a streaming service because you're also getting mm-hmm. Hulu's uh, original content and then paying extra for the live TV functionality. Um, and let's see, what else do I use? Uh, those are the big ones. Uh, I might have one or two others that I use. I have Amazon Prime, obviously, so I will mm-hmm. watch a couple shows there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think think the, at least those are the ones that I watch weekly. Those I might have sure. another app yeah, yeah, or two. Yeah. What about you? Yep. I have all of those. Uh, I pay for all of those. Many people, many people have my logins. Uh, I'm all for sticking it to the man. I mean, uh, I, uh, yeah, we have Hulu live cause we get a couple networks through that, that we don't have through cable, which we still pay for cause we tried to do straight Hulu live for a little bit and just didn't really like it. Uh, didn't like the recording functions. Didn't like it's not the best uh, interface the for live TV, even though yeah, it, it and has the, like, the channels. Yeah, and not skipping commercials, things like that we didn't like. Um, but so, okay, so we have the big ones, right? And so we're both, Amanda and I, my wife, uh, we're super geeked about the Twilight Zone. Okay. But lo and behold, we read a couple negative reviews, and all of a sudden it's, when did that come out? April 1st, right? It's October 22nd, and we don't have a CBS All Access subscription. And like, yeah. frankly, not missing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, there's no, there's not a Twilight Zone shaped hole in my life. So my question is, is one like I know you're a big, uh, big fan of both these ladies. Are you excited for this? And how would you sort of rank that excitement? Uh, and then two, are you gonna buy Apple Plus? Right. Uh, I let's see. I am, yeah, if you give me those three people, if you said a movie was coming out with Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, and Steve Carell, it's almost a guarantee that I'm going to go see that movie or see it at some point, unless the reviews are, you know, like a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. However, um, with the TV show, obviously more of an ongoing commitment, 20 episodes, uh, if it were on Netflix, I would watch it probably the weekend it dropped. But now we're getting to the point, Mm -hmm. the saturation point, where the idea of... uh, adding another service to what I already have and paying what is a pretty nominal 10 bucks a month. But I don't know that the, it's just more inertia to work against more resistance to work against. And, but obviously that's why they shelled out all that money. They need something that will make people want to at least try their product. And then hopefully they're funneling it with enough stuff that people make it a habit. Like they have Netflix or, or some of the other uh, biggest streamers. Yeah. I, I uh, man, I'm, I see there's maybe one scenario where Apple buys Netflix where they're just like, mm, sure. fuck you, here's a ton of money. Um, it's the first market an- thing, right? Like the fact that Netflix became the first true. Yeah, and it became Netflix thing. didn't chill and, and yep. Yep. It's um, not, yeah. They, you know, it's real interesting to me. All they did was the HBO playbook of like, we'll take this new technology and give people shows. And then eventually they figured out, oh, we got to give them our own original shows. And they'll 
love it. And that's all HBO did. Like they were, they used a satellite before anybody. Uh, they were a subscription service on cable before anybody. And then they did, you know, Larry Sanders and Oz and the Sopranos and sex in the city before anybody. And it was just now they're that brand. Yeah. I, I think uh, to wrap up our sort of streaming discussion, I do. I'm glad I put a hundred dollars down on you making a song of the South reference at some point during. Here. So <laughs> that will be the one one we can't get on Disney Plus, which is also forthcoming. But uh, that'll wrap up the news for this. That's week. the one I'm going to get. By the way, uh, uh, we'll we'll wrap this up. It'll segue nicely into our talk of where the hell we've been for the last eight years. Um, but I'm Disney Plus is the only one that day of we're getting because the over catalog. the course of the last year, the catalog. Yeah, we have spent through Amazon Prime 20 bucks a pop on like Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, uh, mm-hmm. Frozen. 101 Dalmatians like we probably spent 150 bucks this year for what we'll get for 10 bucks a month next year yeah I literally don't know a parent that isn't all aboard the Disney plus train for that very reason to just it's basically uh it's the self-selected catalog for every person under the age of 12 uh and actually now that they have Marvel too actually you can expand that age range quite a bit farther up as well um I'm not familiar with that Oh, that's true. I, I know that you uh you um, blind spot. And let me ask you that. this real quick: Are they gonna have the Simpsons? Has that been yep. announced? Is that gonna be on Disney Plus? I I assume unless they decide to have another service that's like you know, uh, but I'm pretty sure they're incorporating like all Simpsons. all the Fox properties with the Disney properties, and so you're getting to a pretty critical mass there of all the things that they can uh, touch. Because of course, Star Wars is included in that as well, and they have the Mandalorian sure. uh, series coming out that they had that uh, teaser trailer for. But yeah, when yeah, you, that's that'll get my credit card info. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, luckily for you, yeah, I do. But I do think that one of the things I, I could be wrong about this, but I believe I saw that there may be um, streams within a stream. So Disney Plus is the app that has all these under its umbrella. But I believe that there's at least a possibility that they're considering uh, having it not necessarily be. Uh, everything in one but rather you know picking and choosing but not that much of a greater expense to add you know uh say sure the sure Marvel and they're already the disney and they're already bundling uh i know you can get disney plus hulu and espn plus for a yeah, pretty low maybe that's fee what now. i was thinking of you know, putting those things together um, but the other the other aspect of this and we're running out of time on this segment so we won't totally get into it today but is the the net neutrality issue of like they're already starting to align with isps where like if you do, I think it's T-Mobile's with Netflix and Verizon just announced today that they're going to be with, um, oh my God, I can't remember who. Uh, let's narrow it down. AT&T is HBO. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peacock's going to be Xfinity. Um, so who's left? Time Warner? Time Warner, That's probably sure. HBO. Yeah, um, uh, Yeah, hold on. Talk for a second and I will look this up uh, and then we can end the segment. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, always good to throw in net neutrality in at the end of a segment for a nice short discussion. A real easy, simple topic, yeah, right? That's that's you in a nutshell, Nathan. Uh, it's time to walk out the door and you say, hey, we need to talk about this real quick. Just real quick before before you... Real, one, one more thing. But just one more thing. Uh, it's uh, Verizon is offering, if you have a Verizon Unlimited package, uh, you get Disney Plus for free. Oh, okay. Um, so, so like... Get you in the door for the uh, cellular service now to get these these services. To get you, because a lot of these things are going to be streamed on my phone to keep my kid quiet while we take her to school. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, well, it's good parent. I mean, TV has always been the greatest babysitter, and now it's just streaming services just taking their place. 
That's why I was so well-versed in our Barney segment. Um, all right, let's get out of here. Uh, and we will talk about uh, in our next segment what exactly we have been up to. Yeah, how you came to be a person that needed a streaming service to babysit your child since you didn't have Perfect. a child last time we spoke. That is true. Not that I knew of. All right, I'll talk. We'll come back in a minute. Nathan, how the hell are you? I'm pretty outstanding, Mike. It has uh, been, what have you been up to? It's been a while. It's been, uh, I mean, we've certainly talked. We don't want to, you know, be disingenuous to our listeners. We, of course, maintained our friendship. This is our first conversation <laughs> in eight years. But it has been eight years since we recorded one of these conversations. And, of course, the inspiration to do this in the first place was we would drive around L.A. together in my car. I would always drive and have these conversations. We said, hey, let's record these. But then an eight-year intermission, Nathan. So... Yeah, a lot has gone on. Uh, let's let's start at the beginning, which is the end of the last iteration of the podcast. So the year was sure. 2011. It's the summer. So yeah, it's summer 2011. It's end of July. And a mutual friend of uh, Mike and I uh, invites me over to his place and like gives me all the booze and all the drugs and basically gets to a place where he feels comfortable talking to me about my creative work. Uh, and it's basically like, hey, man, everything you're doing is bullshit. Uh, you are chasing the market. Nothing you're doing is genuine. And I want to see what's inside of you. Like, I want to see you write something real. Uh, and so I sort of, you know, appreciate that uh, he's able to say this to me and, and appreciate it at the time and wake up in the morning and uh, where my life was at the time, I had to take a bus back to my apartment. Um, always fun a, hungover. That was a great apartment too. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A depressing well, place to go back to. We're not going to, there's no reason to bring that up. Um, so on that bus ride, I get an email on my phone from an, another mutual friend of ours from USC who is, uh, there's been an incident at uh, an incident. A, a professor's had a, one of his children pass away. He's mm. going on leave and they need someone to teach screenwriting 101 uh, at a school in Chicago. Uh, and one of my good friends uh, lived in Chicago at the time. I figured, well, worst case scenario, I could stay on his couch. I'm at the end of it here. You know, I, I, I don't really see any light at the end of this tunnel in terms of screenwriting happening. So let's give this a shot. Uh, thinking I would come to Chicago, teach a class for three months and be back in L.A. You know, before winter. Uh, and that was eight years and three months ago. Yes. Um, uh, to interject, I, I was the person that drew the assignment to drive you to the airport for that fateful plane ride to Chicago. Right. We ate Cuban food on the way there and we said our goodbyes, not really knowing. I, I It's weird because like you said, you went back not knowing if it was going to be a long-term short, probably thinking, oh, I'm just doing this for a short-term thing. But there was something... I don't know. Maybe it's the dramatic in me. But uh, when we said goodbye at that airport, it definitely felt like uh, lives were forking in, in directions. Not you and I away from each other, but just that things were shifting. Well, yeah. And I mean, it, it was one of those moments where life actually has the weight of the movies. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was things shifting. It was a scene. You know, it was people coming together and the trajectory of their lives changing. And, and 
to be honest, there hadn't been enough of those moments in my life. Uh, yeah. And so I needed a change of scenery. What's interesting uh, What were you is, going through at this time? Yeah, well, that same exact calendar year during that summer of 2011, uh, I was living with my girlfriend at the time. Basically, this is a story about how two, pl- two blondes ruined my life. I'm joking. Of course, they didn't ruin <laughs> my life. But uh, earlier at the beginning of 2011, uh, I had a feature that I had written that for about a weekend there, Catherine uh, Heigl, who at the time was the A-list uh, romantic comedy starlet uh, of our generation, was seriously considering starring in, which would, of course, pushed that uh, project into a, a different stratosphere than just, you know, sitting around with a couple people interested in it. But she decided at the last minute to pass. Um, and both of our careers have never been the same since. Um, and then <laughs> a few months later, uh, a concurrent to that, uh, I was living with a blonde woman at the time, my girlfriend, and we kind of came to a um, we broke up. Uh, it was somewhat mutual, but she was the one that sort of instigated the breakup. And that was on a Sunday afternoon in September of 2011. And I packed a bag, got in my car in tears, and drove back to the Bay Area where I am from. So, you know, luckily a little bit shorter a journey than a f- plane flight to Chicago. I drove back just thinking that I was going to clear my head for a few days back at home in the safety. Uh, so I went to my cousin's house. Uh, I plopped my bag down in her guest room, and I never moved back to LA, as it turned out, Nathan. So uh, <laughs> I did not know. Same kind of idea where we both went uh, a direction and a place, and then that place kind of started to give us signs that, hey, maybe there's something here that you should follow. Yeah, and so I... Um you know, in addition to teaching in Chicago, I also got a job uh, at a pretty prestigious wine shop uh, and was doing this sort of weird dual life of living in the beer and liquor and wine industry uh, and teaching screenwriting uh, at, at eight in the morning. So I would party my ass off six days a week and grade papers the seventh day. Um, and it really, you know, I was dating women who were younger than me. I was, uh, drinking a lot. I was really kind of destroying myself. Um, and the wine shop, uh, went out of business and, um, it started to become winter in Chicago. Uh, and they wanted me to teach another class and I was like, okay, I'll stay. But it, it was really starting to become apparent that I, I needed to, make a, some changes in the way that I approached the world, although I didn't really understand that yet. It was just sort of getting to be this weird dark night of the soul period where I had like the first winter I'd experienced in, you know, six or seven years, both literally and metaphorically, where like all of the feelings you don't feel in LA when you're like focused on, oh, my next script or, oh, my band this, or, oh, I got to go score pot or whatever it is that's your distraction for that day of it being 70 degrees and you don't really have to pay attention to taking care of yourself and nourishing yourself in these ways. And all of a sudden I had to feel all of that and deal with all of the sort of unpleasant, the, the shadow self of it. Um, and so that winter was pretty tough and it was sort of buoyed by a, a relationship with a student, not, it's not a loaded word, nothing untoward happened, but a student of mine, I don't, I don't want to get too into it, was also going through something a pretty difficult and we sort of forged a relationship through that and we're still, you know, close to this day. Um, but what was that winter like for you back at home? Well, I, I was, like I said, I, I, so I sort of checked into my cousin's spare room. She's like a sister to me and she was nice enough to, uh, let me stay in her spare room in her condo in San Jose. And 
So I basically lived out of a suitcase, um, what turned out to be for about two years, because I ended up living with her for that long. But during that mm. time, I still had one foot emotionally in LA, and, and I would come back frequently. So I was still, at that point, you know, taking meetings regularly. I had a sitcom pilot that I was developing for Reveille, who did The Office, and there was this executive there I really liked, and that got pretty far down the road. We were doing writers' roundtables, and, and it was really starting to feel real, and it was based uh, around a group of friends who would do basically a, uh, what are those called? Like living social or Groupons. Uh, each mm-hmm, week they mm-hmm. would do something different to try. It was called Culture Club where they were trying to do something rather than just sit at the same bar and have the same conversations. And so they started to pitch it as a web series and it seemed like a perfect fit for a living social or a Groupon to want. They were trying to branch sure. into that space. Turns out, I guess it was too on the nose, but uh, I found myself kind of going back and forth between the two and emotionally felt very, especially with retrospect, I can say, I felt very split down the middle. I felt like I was increasingly aware of the fact that I simply felt more myself and more grounded not living in Los Angeles and yet still having that aspirational, graspy energy in me that wanted so badly to be validated and to be successful that when I would drive down to LA, I would say I would go down there every month or two for meetings and whatnot, mm-hmm. as well as uh, doing some side work to make some money. Um, just, uh, yeah, I was really, I had my ass between two chairs, to use a phrase that one of our oh, great professors Dude, had. I literally lived on LA time. Really? Um, yeah, like I would stay up ha- like really late. Um, and wake up really late and and interact with people on Twitter on the West Coast and uh, really tried to keep my life there because that was – it was too scary to leave it. Like I was still writing pilots. I had this this project mm-hmm. about a band in Seattle in the 80s and it was, you know, $50,000 a minute type of, of idea. Um, and then I, I was sort of very personal and then I sort of hit a, a point where um, – well, I, I mean, it's in the past, so I can talk about it. Like, uh, on St. Patty's Day uh, 2012, like, I basically tried to do all the cocaine in Chicago mm. um, and sort of was like, okay, time to go to therapy. You know, like, it was not a constructive, positive drug experience. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it started out that way, but then it sort of got bleak uh, and not in like a, you know, menacing intent or anything, but a sort of like, okay, it's not acceptable to behave this way, um, type of way. And so I started going to therapy and then just the dumb way life works. Like two weeks later, my uncle died, basically drank himself to death. I went to California for a very weird couple of weeks to like pack up his stuff I had expected because he had told me that he would leave me a bunch of money. He left his bartender $3 million. Like it was so weird, man. And then it got weirder Then my aunt, uh, uh, who I think had also thought he was going to leave her some money, like killed herself on my mom's birthday. Um, and it is true what they say that, uh, Facebook is like suicide. It was cool before my aunt did it. Um, (laughs) and, and I, then my mom got breast cancer. And so through all of this, I'm teaching and like uh, in the midst of this, I get a, a class of mine becomes like a, a necessary for the degree. So like I sort of have a little bit of job security and I'm starting to become a, a much more sort of respected teacher, um, probably because I was still focusing on writing. 
you know, I couldn't focus on teaching enough to ruin it. Right. Uh, so like through all of this, I kept being like, oh, I'll write and fix it. And this will be the script that gets me back to LA and gets my life back on track. Yep. And it's just like, no, like the universe had significantly different plans. I, I remember saying distinctly to uh, both people close to me in my life, but also the therapist I was seeing at the time about how if I moved back to LA, it would be on my terms. Because I assumed that if I did move back, it would be because something great had happened, you know, um, sure. because I had sold something or uh, had some some reason why I had to be back. And, and, you know, during that time, I was lucky enough that my managers at the time um, were supportive of the fact that as long as you could get to meetings, you could do it. And I, I, I'm really glad that happened because even though uh, spoiler alert, the next few years were filled with a lot of me writing scripts that nothing ultimately came of. And it felt a lot like I was shouting in an empty room uh, when I was writing. Um, being able to have this process uh, of coming to terms with both who I was and how my creativity and aspirations for success were intertwined in that, it, it needed to happen gradually. And being able to kind of Basically, what I'm saying is I needed to have one foot in both places for a little while because uh, well, I course. wasn't going to just jump out of the pool, you know, cold turkey. It would have it would have been. Well, right. That's the illusion we tell ourselves, right, is that I'm going to instantly adapt to this new environment and, you know, right. conquer it. It's like, no, like you're it's a blending. There's there's serious adjustments that need to happen. Yeah. And um, I think and in my own writing, like in that period, so if, like what's interesting too is is I'm thinking about these these major moments like when you came back for your your uncle happened to live minutes from where I lived so when you came up you know mm -hmm. we we intersected there as well so uh, you know our stories kind of kept even though we didn't talk very often we had created a friendship where we could pick up where we left off uh, whenever needed um, in life but uh, going back to the the sort of the evolution of, of coming to grips with things. I started writing, you know, to your point about, you know, your friend telling you that you were writing hollow stuff and writing towards the market and whatnot. I, I started to write more and more personal things. And at the time, I thought, well, you know, now I'm writing from something rather than towards something, which is great. And I thought what it would do was, of course, create the success that I had, had been elusive in the past. But I can now say, you know, many years later, looking back, that really all it was doing was pushing me further and further to try to work on myself in a way that actually had uh, long-term effects of changing some of the patterns uh, and, and, and uh, ruts that I found myself in trying, uh, you know, the same, basically trying to run down the same roads and, and have it lead to a different result. Well, that's, I think that's exactly right. And, and obviously, that's the beauty of hindsight that all of the scripts I wrote in grad school and every script I wrote afterwards, you know, however far it went, it's a version of a character needing to learn the lesson that I actually needed to learn in that moment. Mm -hmm. Right. So that like my thesis was about a, a kid who needed to learn to get the fuck away from his family. Right. And art of living dangerously was about a kid, like trying to find his dad and needing to find the uh, man inside himself. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like it became, my writing like steered into that more. Uh, and what I realized is when I'm like, right, honestly, my experiences are like how I feel about people. Uh, nobody wants to read it, uh, much less make it. Um, so it, it became pretty clear 
you know, not right away. I had to get something, you know, I, I made, I had a sitcom I wrote produced here independently and, and, you know, did a web series and had all of this stuff before I finally sort of figured out, oh, like this is not the best expression medium for the expression of me. Like right. it, it's something in the essence of, of Nate DeWitt is lost in the translation of the script. And, and oh, by the way, me spending hours upon hours alone in a room isn't helping me adjust, helping me not be between two worlds, isn't helping me do anything. And it's right. Cause the entire like, reason you probably write in the first place, like most of us is to connect with other people. And exactly right. And central and irony of writing. Well, right. And I, I found that with my class. I mean, I have one of these. So my class is basically TV history uh, over the last 30 to 35 years from a creative perspective, from an industry perspective and from a technological perspective and sort of how those things intersect. And I argued for it to be treated as an arts and lit course and they agreed with my arguments. So like it can be you can watch like take this course instead of a Shakespeare course or a poetry course. Uh, to make that credit. So between that and my ability to convey this information, interestingly, it's the most popular course at the school. And I've reached people and have an audience that I never, ever had or found in writing. And and I, I can actually impact the trajectory of people's lives. And it's so much, uh, so uh, f- fulfilling in a, a deeper way. I mean, obviously it's not, not the type of money of the, uh, you know, uh, our friend who bought a Corvette, uh, or our buddy who owns a house in Studio City, but the the satisfaction from that has sort of, uh, at least of late, like replaced the drive to write significantly. Yeah, it comes down to what I felt like was maybe the biggest epiphany I've had uh, during this last eight years, which is that when dreams and aspirations ultimately come from an emotional place of how we want to feel probably because of some deficits we experienced as children, of course, because that's where a lot of things come from. And the problem with that is because we can't predict the future. We're not clairvoyant. Um, we have in our mind, we want to feel these certain Sorry, ways. Grandma. What's that? I was just apologizing to my grandma that people are not clairvoyant. Yeah, it's, yes, it's of very course. Very upset to hear that. Your, your grandmother aside, um, that because we can't see the future, we take these feelings we want to feel and we project into this box what we think will make us feel that way. And what happens in our case, because I think that one of the reasons that we're such good friends, one of the reasons that we wanted to dust this podcast off with like a new sort of self-development combined with Hollywood story development, our two greatest uh, passions or interests in life, is that we tried to shoehorn uh, this dream of writing movies and television, thinking that it would make us feel all these things. And even in our small successes, which we both experienced, we clearly weren't hacks. We weren't. No one thought we were delusional for doing what sure. we were doing. Um, no, and I, people would kill to have the success we've had. I sure. teach thousands of students a year who would a thousand students a year who would trade love. places in a second. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, but even in the times that I did um, have some success. The things that I realized were that the things that made me feel the way that I wanted to feel had nothing. I mean, of course, it felt it, you get the endorphin hit of like selling a script or whatever. But the, the things that I enjoyed the most were the, were two projects that I never got to pay a dime for, but they had producers attached and we got to work collaboratively, collaboratively, excuse me, together on trying to tell a story. And that is really came down to, again, what I really wanted to feel, which was connected, heard 
and, and valued, and but also importantly, in a way that Hollywood doesn't always offer, to feel a depth of human connection between people of like all being in it together. And I think if I had to, uh, you know, say, you know, in the, in the same way you were expressing like me trying to express Nathan, the medium to do that in was not necessarily scripts, was not the best possible medium. And I think we're similar in that way in that our self-reflection in some ways inhibits us because unless you're a Woody Allen or someone of that singular uh, a voice and something of a savant in your ability to communicate it to the world, um, we're almost too self-evaluative to write great movies, which are really more about, you know, these characters that aren't ourselves, you know, like most, most great screenwriters that I've seen, they don't try to make every screenplay about them, you know, for lack correct, of correct. Correct. Like we all, we, we both swallowed uh, the bait on uh, adaptation, I think a little too much. I, I would say that, uh, um, I'll speak for myself, but I think it's probably true for both of us from a creative writing perspective, grad school ruined me because it gave me a series of check boxes, right. To sort of check as to what a screenplay should be. And so I started to write from that perspective of, Let's achieve perfection rather than this is going to rhyme. So I know you're going to like it rather than focusing on a connection. Oh, um, and so by putting uh, perfection over connection, I actually ceased to have any connection, right? Um, and so that's still something very that's very very hard for me. This this idea that like no the the areas in me that are appealing are the vulnerable spots and the 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 parts that it's like not perfect and and. The well, parts I, where I'm like a perfect person, people are frankly annoyed by. As a quick, as oh. a quick aside, quick tangent here. I think it'd be interesting, just since we're doing this timeline piece, just a quick snapshot of where we are before we go to grad school. So when I think about myself, um, uh, after undergrad, I start working at this job. I end up being this copywriter for this internet marketing company. So I'm feeling very soulless. Uh, in what I'm doing. Uh, I'm using my creativity for evil, as I often used to joke. And then ironically, the first pilot I sold was selling hell about a guy working for Hell's Marketing Company. So it did serve me. But when I think about the reason that I applied to USC to go to film school to get my master's, yes, uh, it had always been a dream of mine since I was a child, like five or six years old, of wanting to be associated somehow with movies and, and TV. But the stuck place I felt when I applied to USC, it was far more about just wanting to feel passionate about something again and wanting to connect with my people. And I suppose, you know, looking at it with a silver lining, even though spending a lot of money on grad school didn't necessarily lead to uh, professional success in the field that I was training for, it did connect me with my people. It connected me with friends that I'll have for the rest of my life. And especially with hindsight, I look back and yeah, sure, you could see it as a waste of money, but I don't think I could have not tried to do that. I needed to to fail at doing that in order to continue down the path that I was supposed to go on. Uh, one, I don't think you failed at doing it. Yeah, that's, um, thank you, you for that. went on the journey to its conclusion. Um, the, so where was I? I was, uh, for me, going to grad school was a jailbreak. I was working for my dad. Uh, in Virginia, uh, he owns a landscape maintenance company and nursery, uh, and they hadn't had anybody they could trust to do the books. So I was basically doing math for a company, um, doing a little bit of creative work, but not really like I could do the work hungover. I could show up, 
Uh, you know, I, I had to be in early, but I got out uh, pretty early. Uh, I obviously didn't have to take the work home with me, but you know, my boss was my dad and my dad's a, a total prick. Uh, to give you a, a sense of how much of a prick, when I found out I got the opportunity to teach uh, in Chicago, I was like, hey, I'm going to Chicago for a few months. His response was, well, sounds like a waste of time um, Supportive. To, to get a job teaching in the exact field I went to grad school for. So for me, it was about like, I'm going to get the hell out of here and go try to make myself into a big shot. And it yep. totally corresponded with my buddy uh, being the, the bassist in the band, The Bravery, which like, uh, no, you know, they're a little bit of a punchline now and they maybe never got to where he certainly wanted them to be, but they were a world touring band and I would be damned if Michael got to be more successful an entertainer than me. Right. Um, so yeah, we were both, for me, we were it, was, both it was about ego for sure. What'd you say? I said we were both stuck. And I think one of the things about being a creative person that I've talked a lot about in therapy is that we have a propensity to, of course, we have very vivid imaginations, and but the biggest thing that an imagination allows you to do, that fantasy allows you to do, that, and creating our stories or anything creative allows you to do, is escape the having to sit with the discomfort of what's going on in your life. Mm-hmm. 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 And somewhat sort of paradoxically, I had to go back to the scene of the crime. So I, I was... My mom got better. I got better. My mom endured the gauntlet of treatment that is uh, uh, dealing with breast cancer and is mutilated and will never be the same, but is alive. Um, and we, our relationship is a subject for several other podcasts. Um, but so uh, I, my class is going well. I'm building up some, some sort of great reputation as a teacher. I have a class that's uh, required for the graduate degree. So I get to see a lot of grad students and I start to obviously see a lot of people who are there trying to escape. Uh, and then about two years after leaving LA, I went back and we actually spent a lot of time together. It was there initially under the pretense that we were going to write something together. Um, and I had to sort of return to the scene of the crime to really process, honestly, seven years worth of, of feelings about that place. Um, and What's so funny I I is know. that I had the exact same experience when we came back a couple years later. That that experience you had that weekend, that was around, that was the 4th of July when we watched Independence Day yeah. and hung out. Yeah. Uh, you had that weekend. And then a couple years later, it was, was it last year that we were in LA together? Yeah, it was last summer. Yeah. I had the exact same experience, just, uh, you know, delayed of really all at once processing all the grief and disappointment around, you know, this fantasy not becoming a reality. All right, well, let's take a quick little break here, uh, and yeah. then we'll come back and talk about grief and disappointment. Yeah, it'll be great, and uh, and a couple of very influential and important women that are going to enter Nathan's life, and uh, we'll see if I can figure it out as well. So, okay, so as we alluded to in our previous segment, uh, yet another uh, July, uh, July 2013, I'd, le- I'd been out of L.A. for two years and I come back and the plan is that Mike and I are going to write this uh, one hour drama. Uh, we're on the weekend of father and uh, his estranged or not estranged, but his uh, uh, family's gotten a divorce and dad and the uh, kid spend weekends together and every weekend they solve a mystery. 
Uh, totally we decide for, not Nathan, to. Quick sidebar, Nathan. Completely forgot yep. about that, and you remind me now. <laughs> of course, I remember that that was the reason. I just remember it being a good hang with you, uh, and running around with our shoes off in the grass because you thought that was, that that was a good thing to do. Yeah. So. Yep. And well, and then so that was the pretense of it, and literally, Mike, within. 15 minutes of sitting down to work on it we were like well this is fucking stupid um <laughs> and it, it became uh, a very different trip right and so like i i wrote a, a long i think very good blog thing uh, about sort of my relationship with los angeles which you can find on my blog of uh, it's a blog post it's called albinism white noise and this particular one is the battle of los angeles uh segment seven but uh, part seven but basically this trip, I, I sort of had to confront all the feelings I didn't want to feel when I was there of of being sort of afraid of of who I was and afraid of, oh, what if I can't do this thing I think I want to do? And and trying to sort of, uh, you know, deal with uh, actual emotions. And um, I remember that trip being there was a lot of weed. Uh, there was a lot uh, more drinking, I think, that I was doing at the time. By, by this point, I had quit smoking cigarettes. Um, but I also went down to visit some friends in Orange County who aren't in the entertainment industry and who had a family. And it was there that I sort of, the way they handled the sort of tasks of parenthood, their their kid crapped in the tub and nobody went ballistic. Um they just sort of dealt with it and came out and split a joint with me. And I was like, Oh my God, you can have a family this way. <laughs> um, and it was sort of there that I was like, okay, I want to look for different things uh, in dating than girls who are 10 years younger than me. I have a question um, for you on that. It, so sure. especially with hindsight, it could have not of course known then. So you have this little mini epiphany moment where you see a family that wasn't like the one that you grew up in. You thought, ah, yeah, well, I maybe crossed off family, but now that I see you can do it this different way. Great. Maybe this could be for me. But my question would be given what we just described um, about the decision that we made to go to grad school of essentially escaping a situation that felt like we were stuck. Is there any mm -hmm. part of you that looks back now at that decision or at least could frame it in the same way? You were feeling stuck. This thing didn't work. So I'm going to try something else. hundred um, percent. But I think it's more, uh, again, I, a little bit of jealousy, if I'm honest, I, I was staying with uh, Gary and Melinda or at their place when they were out of town. I was staying with you in, a family's place. They've subsequently gotten divorced, but that is uh, neither here nor there. Um, and then I went down to these people's houses and then I stayed with our, our friend who uh, uh, Jordan was living with his girlfriend at the time. So everybody I was with was in a relationship and like cohabitating. Mm -hmm. And I was out of Chicago for two weeks and didn't have to tell anyone. You know what I mean? I didn't have to let anyone know I think I told my therapist, hey, I'm going to L.A. for two weeks. But aside from that, I didn't have to share my, you know, no one was missing me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that I, I realized like, oh, I'm not going to, I don't have to wait to come back to L.A. to feel that type of connection. What I right? find like just I, interesting is that you came back to L.A. with the explicit intention of wanting to co-author a story with me. And you left L.A. with the idea that you wanted to co-author uh, a life experience with, with someone. Well, sure, because the, the, the other thing I came to understand is that in writing screenplays that never got made, I wasn't doing anything. Right. 
no, you know what I mean? There's no, the, the, the jokes I write for stand up. Nobody can laugh at them in my drafts folder. No, you know what I mean? No, no one can laugh at them in my notebook, right? There's no, if it doesn't reach an audience ever, it, it is, as you said earlier, I think like screaming into a, a, a wall. Uh, and I think I came to terms on that trip with this idea of like, oh, this just isn't for me. I mean, it took me a while. Like I, I still tried to make stuff and, and I think I, I tried to sort of fit this, this square peg in that round hole. Uh, but it, I'd also guess you haven't written your last screenplay in your life. I, I, I personally, Oh dude, I think so, man, for me to sit, have the, the attention span to do that. It, it feels like I would have to have a, one of those lightning bolt. This can only exist as a script. I see it and it feels like it's achievable for me to man, for me to not spend time with this jumping ahead here, but for me to not spend time with my kid, like, ah, it's tough. It's tough to imagine letting myself go to that place of, of essentially justified disassociation, right? Where I, I sure. spend my day in this fictional universe. It's real tough to understand, to do that and, and feeling like I get so little out of it. Um, you know, that said, if, if our buddy Lon has a new show on Fox this, this fall, if he calls us and is like, Hey, I got a staffing spot open for you. You two guys want to do it. I'll be on the plane. Um, but you know, I don't, I, I don't see myself doing that. I, I uh, really on that trip and subsequently in seeing my work produced, I don't think that's where my mojo is. I honestly, if you want my, where I am now uh, with it. So when, when our friend was like, everything you write is, is meaningless. The idea I came up with was to do a show about a band. I think what I really wanted to do was be in a band. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's a much easier way to connect with people. It is a much more, uh, instant type of, of uh, reaction from the audience. I mean, the um, reason I, every television show in history has been successful, a sitcoms at least, is that people are sitting there alone, uh, wishing they were surrounded by their friends or a family that they actually loved, and they're watching this surrogate, you know, version of it in front of them, right? That's why Friends is still that's popular, exactly right? right? Yep. And I think that that definitely comes in the creativity part as well as wanting to not feel alone so what are the things we write about people coming together about people finding love about people finding you know them themselves or what have you so anyway but at a certain point the act of writing by myself was yes. not making me feel any less alone no um and i i think I, I came to understand that on that trip and and did some more collaborative stuff since then but then in in seeing my work produced was sort of like i i don't have it and I mean, that's a, a much longer conversation for like the shortcomings, not shortcomings, but the, the things my writing doesn't have, my screenwriting doesn't have that it needed to have to be successful is, is a different conversation. But the point is that this trip was extremely cathartic and I come back from it and I'm in a very sort of different headspace in terms of approaching relationships and in terms of uh, thinking about myself. And I have this weird dream where all matter in the universe reshuffles itself. And like oh. to the extent that like my alarm clock is made out of strawberries, right? Like this level of matter shifting and knock on wood. Uh, since then, things have been pretty good. Okay. Um, so strawberries like are it, a very positive omen in your life then. Apparently. Um, because so I do, you know, I do the dating thing and, and it's terrible. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, 
Tinder is not a great environment for a person with albinism, uh, as it turns out. <laughs> um, but I managed to I meet uh, my wife on OkCupid, or the woman who would become my wife on OkCupid, and it was an instant chemistry type of thing. Like from the texts, uh, exchanges, there was a banter and. Um, it was sort of a, oh, okay, I'm going to be about this for a little while, uh, type of thing. And, and I needed, we, we talk, my wife and I talk all the time about sort of, I don't think at any other time in our lives, do we, A, like each other as much as we did at that moment, or B, like let ourselves in as much as we did, just because she was coming off a bad relationship. And I was sort of in this place of being curious and open, um, and I think importantly, too, I remember talking to you at that time right after you'd met Amanda and you said to me, this is probably a few months in at that point. So you had a little bit more perspective than you did at the very, very beginning. But you said, Mike, I just decided to date someone that likes me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a nice change of pace, right? This yeah. whole experience has been about like, hey, hey, dummy, why don't you do what f- actually feels good? It's about accepting right? too, like because like, a lot of yeah. it is just accepting that someone can, lo- you know. There's a there's definitely a part of both of us for different reasons that uh, there's on some level we don't feel we're worthy of love or acceptance, or at least a part of us did, you know, feel that way, or is is we're trying to work through that. I'm so, gonna blame our dads. <laughs> maybe <laughs> it's very possible, but yeah, just it's actually accepting someone loving, caring about us. And of course, with the whole writer trap is there's this striving to be so exceptional and so special that sure. everyone will listen to you. But really, all we, all we really want, what we're talking about with this human connection thing, is you just want the person across from you. It doesn't have to be a romantic interest either, but just the person across from you to truly accept who you are and, and like you for who you are and understand that you can feel safe enough to fucking be yourself and and that's all you need to be. You don't need to write the greatest script on the planet to be accepted. Yeah, and and the difference is like once we sort of, I mean, trains is a good metaphor, but once our sort of trains got on the same track, and and as I said, I don't know that there's another time in our lives when they would have we would have had that juncture. It, it just became sort of about okay, like I've shown this person who I am, the good and the bad, and they're sticking around. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, and oh, by the way, they're not making me feel shitty for sticking around. Whereas in my 20s, one way or another, if I showed somebody like my uh, dark side of me or even, uh, you know, said something super awkward, I was just like, well, that relationship's over. Uh, you know, it was, it all felt disposable. But to, to go into this with a different level of commitment, I think knowing that like I, a, a serious relationship was a priority to me, um, obviously had an impact on the outcome. Um, you know, we had plenty of, of, uh, obstacles and setbacks and, you know, a stalker ex-boyfriend of hers and, and issues of, of trauma to your point of like, once you feel safe with someone, like you can deal with all the stuff you're not feeling or you didn't feel three years ago, you know? And so, so there was a lot of that for both of us. But you were Um, both, you're both showing up for each other. And like at that same period when you're meeting Amanda, I was dating this woman who on our first date, I mean, we, we hit it off obviously very quickly. That's one of the reasons we dated for a while. Um, but on our very first date, she told me the story about like, I, at that point I started to ask people what their patterns were in relationships. Cause I was starting sure. to identify my own. 
And she said, well, she wasn't the most self-reflective person, at least at that point when I met her. And she's like, uh, you know, kind of basically said there wasn't a type or a pattern. And then she said, oh, but, you know, every boyfriend I've ever brought home for Thanksgiving, we've broken up soon thereafter. And uh, I. Uh, yeah, there's not a pattern. There. Yeah, we laughed at that. And then uh, we met we met in like September. Uh, we dated very seriously for those next few months. I went uh, home with her for Thanksgiving uh, and spent the weekend with her very well-off family. And wouldn't you know it, Nathan, but uh, after that Thanksgiving, she started to get more and more distant, and we broke up a few months later. So really, <laughs> the moral of that story, uh, which you are, you're a little ahead of me on, the, on to use the tra- train track metaphor, is just when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. Yeah, that's a big one, man. Um, that's a big one I still struggle with, because, right, you want these people to be ideals you want them to be better than people but then every now and then people show you exactly who they are and it's so easy yeah to right. ignore it particularly in a relationship yes of course um when there's like oh I don't, i'm not lonely anymore and this person's attractive like what <laughs> you know how am i supposed to give that up yeah. um tell the story of when you proposed to amanda because i love that story i think it's a perfect encapsulation of how um oh so um we uh, we moved in together and we uh, went on a vacation together uh, with my family. Uh, we drove from Chicago to Virginia together a couple of times. We got a dog. We got a cat. Like we we did all the things to sort of like test our relationship. And we, we found we work pretty well together. So it became pretty apparent in like 2015 that we were going to get married. So our, you know, everybody's got a, an engagement idea. Um, and I went through big grandiose fantasies but ultimately just decided that uh our life isn't gonna be these glamorous moments so i just sort of got down on one knee in our guest room um and asked you to marry me and uh she said yes obviously that's what <laughs> i did know the answer before i asked wasn't it um, on the, you can correct me if i'm wrong obviously you know the story better than sure I, but wasn't it on the heels of like you guys making up after like having an argument the night before or something like you'd work, oh yeah, work yeah, yeah through yeah. something Working, yes, having worked through a, a uh, an argument, I don't even remember what it was about, honestly, but it was, uh, got to figure something. Um, got to figure I was hurt or overreacted in sure. some way. But I, I think that's perfect, uh, right? That that you chose to move forward in your relationship at a moment after you worked through, because that's what relationships are really about, is, is working. Well, of course. Things. And we'd had, we'd had a lot of practice with that, right? We had a lot of moments where uh, you know, she, frankly, she violated my trust and we had an opportunity to sort of, uh, talk about it and, and talk about the nature of sort of like, well, when you tell a lie, it's usually out of a place of fear. And, um, that, that all helped. And, and it's, it's, I'm, it's a little difficult now because so some of the, the, uh, my, my mom and sister, the original women in my life, like they see these changes in me and they think that Amanda is the cause of them. But in reality, like my wife is the result of changes I made. You know what I mean? Like, yep. like she's uh, she is in my life because I have grown. I have not grown because she is in my life. I mean, I have, yeah. but not absolutely. No, absolutely. That makes perfect. It's sense not to some me. type of savior story. Like I did the work. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I showed up. And- yeah, you have to change what's inside of you to attract something different. So uh, those yeah, things the- don't have to happen like independently of one another. They can both happen in the same time period because you're working on yourself. But new things start to show up. You have to change your internal topography and geography before new things are going to, you know, you're going to find new things on the map out in the world. Sure. And and uh, it, I've sort of 
telling out of order here, but an undercurrent through all of this is that I, I was going to weekly therapy with a doctor who has experience in academia and Hollywood. So he has like a very specific skill set uh, in talking to me and a very uh, thorough understanding of both the worlds I'm trying to navigate. And there was a day in therapy sometime between starting uh, and the world remaking itself with strawberries uh, mm. that I remember being like, well, I guess like in therapy, I had one of those moments where it's just like, I guess it's my life. Isn't some story. I guess it's just, it's just a life. Uh, and it felt like I had like told myself a secret. Mm. Uh, and it, 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 it was really grounding. And I think this whole process for me of coming here has been about grounding and there's very few things more grounding than a child, <laughs> um, you yes. know, and, and, so uh, Amanda and I sort of chug along uh, uh, in our personal relationship and, and professionally. And, um, you know, I'm doing great at, at uh, the college I'm teaching at. They give me the MFA thesis to run uh, in screenwriting. And I do an outstanding job of that in addition to having this course that's, that's popular. And so I think that I am on the fast track and I'm told I'm on the fast track and the shortlist for a full-time appointment. Uh, and then they don't give it to me. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in hindsight, I was furious, but in, I'm, I'm sorry, at the time I was furious. I was going to say. Uh, yes. in, in hindsight, it's, they made the right move. Our, all of our lives are easier and the work, the program is stronger for because of the hire they made. And, and uh, my life is better for having not gotten it, right? It's one of those things, uh, you know, where everybody actually won. But literally the next day, uh, I get an email uh, from the school saying they have... Uh, they're starting a committee that's going to look into the treatment of adjunct part-time faculty. Uh, and so I, out of pure, pure spite, uh, spite and jealousy, my two motive powers, um, sign up for this committee. And am now this is, that was in 2016. I've run it every year since then. Uh, the, the head of it, the point man on all of this interacting with like university higher ups on, issues of treatment for the adjunct faculty. They have my, uh, well, not anymore, but for a while there, they had my complete and undivided attention. Um, and it was, it was a really interesting experience because again, I feel heard. It feels like a good environment for my skill sets. I get to do a lot of talking and, you know, I like to speak in paragraphs. Um, I, I get to lead meetings. I get to feel like a leader. I get to be thoughtful. I have not written a, anything other than like blog posts and things like that since taking on this post. But I also am sort of in a place like that where with that rather where I'm not going to sit down and write something unless I have something to say mm -hmm. uh, to your point about, you know, maybe my last screenplay isn't in me. If I have something to say that I think can only be expressed that way, I'll do it. But that's just not what I'm about right now creatively. Um so uh, all that has been a, an interesting experience. And then, so we are getting married in uh, September 2016. In July 2016, a, a theme here emerges of life-changing July events. We go to my buddy's wedding and we're basically, because there's no cell phone service, uh, there's no Uber, we get hammered. We end up sort of being stuck at our uh, bed and breakfast and yada, 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 we make my daughter. Um, uh, and so... We, uh, this is like six weeks before we're scheduled to get married that we find out about it. We find out the same day that we have bed bugs. Uh, so we ended up moving. We, we moved into our new place uh, the day of our rehearsal dinner. Um, 
or no, the day before our rehearsal dinner, I think, uh, and then got married uh, and sort of then immediately got onto the on-ramp of dealing with a pregnancy. Uh, I'm curious, though, what was your experience of my wedding and like where were you leading up to that? Was that the classic, uh, but enough about me, what did you think of my last picture? Yes. Yes, that is. <laughs> Shout out to Nina Foch, RIP. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm at the point where I'm between relationships, between um, between creative projects, feeling a little bit aimless. So I fly out to beautiful Chicago on Labor Day-ish weekend, uh, September 2016. And this is where you know you're truly friends and love someone because I had the greatest time ever. I didn't spend any time, you know, I certainly had moments here or there thinking of like, I would like this one day. I would like to have a wedding. I would like to, you know, build a life with someone. But I was so genuinely uh, happy to watch you go through that process, get to spend time with a lot of our uh, friends from USC that weekend. It was, it was, uh, for the people that were not involved in the wedding, it was almost like a reunion as well on top of, you mm -hmm. know, merged into your wedding. But I'll never forget, uh, for as long as I live, uh, the words that you spoke uh, so beautifully in you were having a hard time because you got really choked up really fast. Uh, you were exchanging vows with Amanda and you started them by saying uh, something to the effect of, I don't know what I was doing before I met you. And you just, there, there was a, a uh, self-reflective, uh, almost a surrender, you know, to, in a good way, to, I, you know, I'm doing all this stuff, trying to be all these things, and then, you know, it's kind of what you're talking about, just like letting those walls down of vulnerability that clearly happened when you met her and you were ready to do, um, and it was, it was a be very beautiful thing, and it, I think, you know, part of why we go to therapy is because we did not have certain um, things modeled to us and, and it mm -hmm. takes in life sometimes having them modeled by your friends, by your therapist, by just people in your life where you get to see someone having a different experience and it not coming through the lens of like Instagram or Facebook where you're just seeing these very surface level. Here's how great my sure, life is. Curated but actually, version of a life. Yeah, yeah. Being on the ground there, me sitting in a lawn chair uh, out in this beautiful backyard in Chicago and watching you was have it, this. Was it a lawn chair, folks? Was it, didn't, I, was it billed as a lawn chair? All I remember well, is that there was a, there's a plane that flew over advertising. Was it Coors Light or Bud Light? And it seemed very It was Coors Light. Yeah, Coors Wasn't Light. Cheap. Yeah. Um, but you had that beautiful moment. And uh, it, what's funny is that, you know, your wedding weekend, I, you know, didn't really get to spend much time with you. I was the first time I met Amanda and I didn't get to spend much time with her either. But being witness to that experience was, I think, in, in some ways uh, transformative. But, it, you know, it's talking about what would happen in my life next, it, what I'm struck by is sort of the pattern of thinking the next creative project or the next woman I meet will, it will be different, right? Just just mm -hmm. the fact that something is new, this renewed hope, because I'm, I'm pretty, you know this about me, uh, if we have one fundamental difference in our personalities, or, or there's a few, but one of them is that I'm definitely more of a, an optimist than you are, I would, I would sure. imagine you would agree with. Most people are. <laughs> that is true. It's a, it's a Most people are more optimistic than me. But what I've realized uh, 
is that a lot of my optimism and my emotional resilience of picking myself up off the carpet after a script doesn't work out or a relationship doesn't work out. I mean, I like the fact that I'm emotionally resilient and can dust myself off and try again. However, if you don't try, I've always conflated being self-aware about what my problems were with actually being able to do something different. But you do need to do take it a step further and actually start to make different decisions, which of course is incredibly difficult um, to to actually yield different results. So I think that the combination of you know seeing you get married, uh, it makes me think. You know, I then go on after that to start dating my coworker in this tiny company that I work with. Literally, most days it was just the two of us or three people there. So incredibly emotionally risky to start dating your coworker when you are you know one of th- two people they see every day all the time um, i've done that yeah i mean you know where else do you meet people um but i got spit out the other side of that when it didn't work out and uh, it was just the same pattern again uh, but it took going through that and and concurrent to that you know going back to katherine heigl and and another blonde girl breaking up with me in the same year that same two, three-month period, I broke up with my managers of 10 years in Hollywood and kind of, for the first time, really started to let go of that uh, part of myself. And then this relationship ended as well. And, you know, the one advantage to having the entire house burned down, so to speak, is that, you know, if you take the time to do it and try to start doing something different, you have the opportunity to rebuild something uh, better and that that's around the time that I started you know again being a little bit further behind you on the train tracks uh, started to go to therapy myself to start to try to actually work on these things that I was aware of but wasn't really doing anything about um, but- sure and and it becomes a little bit of a trap right where you're like oh I can name what's bugging me that's it I did it and it's like well no you get you have to name it and then figure out how to, you're gonna reconcile with it and and Right. It's, it's like life. being it's like being hungry and saying, I want a hamburger, but then not actually mm-hmm. cooking it. You know, exactly right. It's good for you. You've identified what you want, but you actually have to do the work to, to make it. Um, and so one thing to put a button on that before we take a break here to your point about modeling that line about I didn't know what I was doing before I met Amanda is a variation on my friend who'd gotten married in uh, October 2009 uh, was. uh I thought I knew everything. Then I met you. Um, and I was like, okay, that's, that's pretty good. But it's the same type of thing of like, without these models, people like you and I, who didn't have going back to, to blame our dads. Um, but he didn't have a, a dad who was there every day uh, to literally model what it is to be a man. Um, we need these things. And it's really, well, we'll talk about this when we talk about what happened in LA, but uh, it is something that I'm wrestling with to accept that, no, I am that model for a significant number of people mm-hmm. uh, because it does not feel like I am a model of anything. Well, I think most importantly, though, that you're a model of that for yourself. Is, is, That's you right. Know. That's right. Yeah. All right. Let's take a quick break. So 
That brings us to the present, at least this year, calendar year. Uh, we're not obviously there's ten months into. Yeah, this year, just so. I mean, big big things. I have a we have a baby. She's awesome, Beatrix Fiona. Uh, How old is she two now? Two and a half now. Yep, two and a half. Uh, she's potty trained. She thinks she's twenty five. She's uh, she's the coolest. I will talk about her a lot on this podcast. Uh, it was a difficult pregnancy, which maybe we'll talk about at some point. Uh, but it, uh, it's awesome that she's here. We're thinking about having another one. Um, yeah, obviously that's a great, if you want to do it and have the means to support them, <laughs> I can only assume if you had a boy, you would name it Maloney DeWitt, right? Uh, that is not the name we've been talking about for a, a boy. Well, throw it in the uh, copper to share our name. Cause we're not looking for notes, but, um, is <laughs> uh, that is unfortunately no, not in the final run. Right, fair enough. I, I'll um, take that. But one okay. So let's talk about, so I have a kid and it's pretty crazy. And so I decide, okay, I I'm exhausted from work. I'm exhausted from parenting. My wife is amazing. And she says, why don't you go to LA for a couple of days, uh, see your LA friends. And so I go out. Uh, we get an Airbnb together. Um, yeah, this is last my primary summer. concern on this trip. This is last summer. Yeah, last uh, August. And my primary concern on this trip, there's no surprise to regular listeners, is uh, being high the entire time. That's right. I remember that uh, being a, so, your explicit mission statement for the, the weekend. Well, you... I don't go on many vacations. No. And for for me, I was coming down to L.A. for the first time in a while. Uh, I hadn't seen you since your wedding, I think, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. In person. Um, And it is a month. I think a month after the breakup with my managers. uh, That sounds right. And two months after my breakup with my girlfriend. So I'm a little bit different emotional place, a little less steady than having a wife and a kid and and having uh, <laughs> LOL at the idea of that being steady, yes. but I understand where you're coming from. Yes. At least uh, the puzzle pieces being affixed. I, I, and you could obviously seeing it from the other side, my etch a sketch was clean and I could start drawing whatever I wanted. But at the same time, you know, uh, it using a different analogy felt like I had a lot of puzzle pieces still to figure out here, even if uh, you can sure. argue about the picture. So I didn't know it at the time, but the LA trip spending time with you, I know I'm going into it with retrospect my intention is I get to live a few days remembering uh, sentimentally what it was like back in 2010, 11, when you and I were writing full time, when we started the podcast in the first place, playing golf every week together. I'm going to get to escape again that theme coming up, the discomfort mm-hmm. of where I feel right now and get to spend a couple of days with one of my best friends, as well as seeing many of our other very great friends that we share. Um, and... That happened uh, in some ways, but also what happened is it turned out to be this uh, incredible emotional reckoning of going back to L.A. And for the first time, because of these breakups that uh, aforementioned breakups, really having to sit with um, the uncomfortability of I'm I need to let go emotionally of this this piece of my life if I want to build something new, because. The problem is, is that my emotional foundation had never really shifted uh, away from that dream. Mm-hmm. And so in, in kind of like you were talking about with when you were still writing, but you became a great teacher because your focus wasn't all in that, realizing that, you know, as long as my, all my emotional eggs were in this basket of this dream, uh, of course, I kind of, it was like I was in a purgatory that I couldn't build something in mm-hmm. a different mm-hmm. city with different people around. And it, it culminated for us. And I think ultimately what we'll look back on, I certainly look back on already as one of the most important moments in our friendship. We were having a, uh, 
there's a personal uh, one of our friends w- was getting married and uh, I was feeling left out of the group uh, for reasons that we don't need to get into. Um, but basically, uh, I was feeling sorry for myself. And you were at a point where I think you'd had enough of trying to emotionally care for people because you had a baby at that time <laughs> and certainly a relationship that you were putting a lot into, etc. And you lost your temper with me uh, and just basically told me, uh, you know, in no uncertain terms that I, uh, I don't remember exactly what you said, but it's, the, the underlying message was you need to grow up. And mm-hmm. I was in tears and I was very... I felt very broken at that point, not because of you, of course, but it was the... Sure, sure. I didn't help. I mean... No, but you know what happened is I went to bed that night thinking that uh, I never wanted to see any of my LA friends again because it's that overreaction, right? If I'm going to leave this part of my life behind, you know, burn the bridges to everything that was good that came from that chapter. Uh, Nathan's going to fly back to Chicago in another 24 hours. Uh, I won't see my LA friends again, and I'm just going to start over me and not have any of this baggage. Uh, but instead, what happened is we woke up the next morning. Uh, we kind of said an awkward hello to one another, and then we decided to go for a walk to you go get coffee, and we went to walk down to Park La Brea, which was quite a ways from our Airbnb. Turned out significantly farther than I remembered it being. Quite a ways. We walked all the way across Los Angeles, which is something no one ever has said before. Um, and... Yeah, and we talked it out. And I think the thing that that made me realize, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of relationship you're talking about, is that a lot of times when we try to avoid momentary discomfort by walking on eggshells around people or conforming to what we think other people want in us, uh, it creates a real emotional instability because you don't feel safe to be yourself. And so having an uncomfortable conversation in the moment Uh, allows you to avoid having an ongoing uncomfortable dynamic with a person. And so for us to really, for you to feel your anger and frustration in that moment, for me to feel my grief and sadness in that moment, and we processed it by actually experiencing those emotions in real time, Mm -hmm. we could come back together the next day, have one of our long chats that we could have recorded for a podcast had we not been walking all the way across fucking Los Angeles. Um, And your bond becomes stronger because you actually work through something together, kind of like what we were talking about with you and your wife, you know? Well, that's, that's exactly right. And, um, there's, I know you're not a fan, but there's a Rick and Morty episode that's all about this where, um, the basic idea of the episode is there's a, a parasite that has infected the family and it's creating these characters, uh, that are implanting false memories in them and then sort of existing in the house. So like, a, a uncle that doesn't really exist. Right. Uh, and and the point of the episode, it's a bottle episode. They're trying to get rid of all these characters and sort of figure out who's real. And what they ultimately come uh, to conclude is that the people who are real are the people you have negative memories of, right? And so that we can remember that fight and still remember all the good stuff we have. Like, it makes this a real relationship rather than like, you know, I've never gotten in a fight with some of our other grad school friends. Right. Just like there aren't other grad school friends who would like sit me down and be like, hey, what's your writing's? Uh, garbage right like it's it's those types of relationships that i actually value and and um, what i'm struggling with now is sort of understanding you know at the start of a relationship how to understand okay is this going to be one of those or is this another one where i have to sort of be a little bit more guarded or or diminish have diminished expectations Mm -hmm. um and and for me that trip really cemented this idea that uh, whether I like it or not, I am a role model. 
uh, and certainly a father figure. Um, and I know I didn't do the best job of parenting you in that moment because I did yell at you and it was, it was pretty abrasive. Um, but that, that is uh, part of my role and that uh, part of my identity uh, and part of the reason I can stand in front of a class and sort of command their attention is that I, I have a tremendous big older brother energy. Uh, and um, it's taken a long time to see that. And I think what you were struggling with there, I would frame it a little bit differently because it is, I would frame it around sort of my, my understanding of it uh, with me is this difference between the narrative, the image of Mike Maloney and, and who you really are. And just as I struggle with the difference between who I think I am and who I really am. Right. Because ultimately our identity is a mix of Nathan DeWitt is a mix of me and my perceptions, but it's also like who you think I am. Right. And the, the actual truth is somewhere where those two Venn diagrams intersect. Um, and I think that trip, particularly because we were with our old friends hanging out on our old haunts, like really illustrated for me, one, the discrepancy in, I mean, you know it, but it's another thing for one of our buddies to be like, yeah, and this whole thing cost me $40,000 and just sort of shrug his shoulders, right? Uh, uh, you know, and like he's pretty secure after this debacle that he's going to get another job. And it, it really highlights the discrepancies in sort of career success. Uh, but it also really highlights the discrepancies, I think, in, in how we see ourselves versus how our friends look at us. Um, and I think you went a little too far down that in, in sort of thinking, you know, we're not fulfilling your expectations exactly as you'd like, so we must hate you, which is a totally normal uh, reaction, I think. But anyway, I'm glad we worked through it. Yeah, well, I think uh, what I would say is that during that period and still to this to this uh, day, because uh, that was a year ago, a little over a year ago now, um, I think what I was reflecting on was just how um, my external experience with people, what I'm putting out into the world, I've, I've seen it shift very dramatically over the last, especially over the last year, but last couple of years where uh, what's really changed is I'm actually the same as I am with my closest friends. Like, I don't think you would perceive that much of a difference. But <laughs> I'm bringing that more authentic, uh, uh, simplest way for me to put it is I, I'm a lot funnier. I mean, I'm a lot less funny than I used to be. And it's not because I have any less wit or cleverness in me. I just, uh, I've stopped sort of using that as what I lead with. Um, mm -hmm. And in some ways, like sometimes I'll reflect like, am I boring now? And it's like, no, sure. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm coming at it from a different perspective because what the way that I was uh, designed <laughs> through, through my childhood is basically I would use humor as a mechanism to get people comfortable enough with me that I could actually be my vulnerable self that I wanted to be. And now I find it's actually the reverse where I start with a lot of authenticity and, you know, uh, avoiding small talk and asking people very personal questions to get to know the real them. And then once I feel comfortable start to be funny and silly and, and let mm -hmm. go. So it's kind of inverted itself. And I think as particularly when it comes, of course, to there's this inexorable link between our forward facing selves and our creative selves, because of course, they're kind of linked together. And I think that part of what I was reckoning in that whole experience was that the version of me that I was leaning forward into that energy to be 
Hollywood Mike or whatever you want to call it, which included being that person with a lot of our, you know, friends. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, that guy wasn't, I, I'm not even judging that person. He's fine, but he, he's not who I want to be in a lot of ways, but it, it, not just uh, when it comes to like the dream and aspirational thing of letting go of the Hollywood dream, but also just like, I don't, it's not even that I don't like myself in that energy. It's just like, this isn't who I really am. And I would like to be more, uh, bring more of the vulnerability I carry in one-on-one -on -one interactions with people that I'm proud of myself for being that kind of person into more parts of my life so that I don't have to be, uh, you know, make fun of people or sure, say things sure, that sure, make sure. other or people be the life of the party or the yeah, yeah. yeah. or or like uh, you know one of the things that I realized you know sometimes in sharing gossip with people or saying catty things about people which I've certainly done plenty of in in my life that the reason we do that is of course not that we're bad people but that we want to connect with these other people and bring them in but what happens when you do it in that way rather than the more authentic way is of course you know you're 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 showing the other person that you can't really be trusted that well um sure by, by doing that it also uh deflects from yourself to, mm -hmm. to crap on other people like oh we're all pointing at them nobody's pointing at me Whew. yeah uh and and i think that um you know i find that i'm uh, probably less funny, uh, or probably funnier, but make less jokes. Yes, I definitely uh, make less certainly jokes. quieter. Uh, <laughs> would be hard to imagine a person being louder. <laughs> um, but I think it comes down to that this is uh, a very appropriate way for two 39 year old males podcast to end or to, to start to wrap up. But I think it comes down to that Wilco lyric of what you once were isn't what you want to be anymore. Um, and like at a certain point, you grow out of your behaviors, you grow out of your coping mechanisms and it's time to sort of cultivate some new ones. And, and that's when it gets terrifying because of course you forget how you cultivated those coping mechanisms in the, in the first place, right? You forget how to learn new coping mechanisms once you have coping mechanisms. And so it's, it's hard to sort of, as you say, burn the whole house down and, and start over. But I think that this podcast is, is a part of that. My New Year's resolution for this year was to be more, uh, do more creative collaborations. And I've taken guitar classes with my daughter uh, and done a lot with her and and done some stuff with my wife. But this is a big, uh, important thing to me to sort of try to connect with you and, and share this sort of honest discourse. Yeah, I think to use um, a Hollywood analogy, um, you know, you hear actors, TV actors talk a lot about, you know, if they are on a sitcom or a long running drama where, you know, they just get to the point where after eight or nine seasons, they're just tired of playing that character. But I think we kind of overestimate the different iterations of ourselves, of course, because fundamentally we never change, but there's big parts of us that do. And just being in some ways in a sort of beautiful, you know, all ends or beginnings uh, way, we're restarting an old podcast, but really starting a new podcast um, because of the changes that we've gone through that hopefully we've uh, been able to articulate to, to everybody uh, over these this episode, over these last eight years that have, have occurred to us. So we're the same Mike and Nate, but we're very different Mike and Nate. And I think that the show will hopefully, while talking about a lot of the same subjects, will be talking about them 
with a little bit uh, different a perspective that reflects where we're at. And ultimately, you know, the reason that we started the podcast in the first place isn't that different than the intention that you just said, which is we used to drive around together and have these long, sprawling conversations about these things. And we thought that people might feel a little less alone if they were in the car with us, uh, you know, listening along or talking along if you're talking at your headset right now. Um, but yeah, uh, if nothing else, it's a great excuse for us to uh, spend some time together every week. And hopefully uh, all the listeners will enjoy spending time with us as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's if I don't care if nobody listens to it, I can't remember the last time we spent two hours together. So like, that's cool. This is this has been awesome. I hope people have enjoyed it and find this elucidating. And if you don't, fucking listen to something else. All right. Let's do it again next week then. All right. For sure. Let's do it. All right. All right. I love you, buddy. I love you too, bud. Bye.